A lot of wonderful truths in those songs. Praise God for good truths, good doctrine, good music, musicians to help lead us in worship. It's wonderful praise, much to praise him for. We're going to be reading all three chapters, but for the start, we're going to read just chapter one, and then we'll read chapters two and three throughout the sermon as we go. In Revelation chapter one, the holy scriptures of the Lord read, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of mighty waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. And came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hates. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before you. And Father, we ask that we would even just get a glimmer of what we just read, realizing that one day soon we will stand before the risen Christ in all of your glory and splendor and majesty. And Father, we know you've told us we will give an account for all of our actions, for all of our words, even our idle words. And so, Father, we just ask that on that day that we would live for you in a way where we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so, Father, we praise you that we know that we will survive that day and make it through into eternal life, not because of our works, but because of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the life that we deserved. And so, Father, we just ask that you'd bless your people now through the preaching of your word, through the foolishness of preaching. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a game of winners and losers where if you want to win, you've got to do exactly what you're told when you're told. And if you don't, you're out. They say jump, you've got to jump. They say close your eyes, you close them. Stand on one leg and hop like a bunny while barking mad like a dog. Well, you've got to do that too. And if you don't, you're out. That doesn't sound very difficult though, does it? Not really. Very simple commands. Except for there's one problem. There's a whole lot of imposters out there who are throwing false commands at you, telling you to listen to their voice instead of the voice you're supposed to listen to. And if you follow the wrong voice, even once, you're out of the game. So how do you know then the right voice from the wrong voice? The right commands are given with a very special name attached to them, and the wrong ones, they don't have that name. may have a name that sounds kind of like it, but it's not that name. And so you have to do what? You have to ignore the other voices. What game am I talking about? Simon says. It's not Johnny says. It's not Billy says. It's not Sally says. It's not even Pastor Zach says. It's Simon says. That one might come back to bite me. But no, it's Simon says. You do it or you're out. And if Simon doesn't say it, then you don't do it. And if you do something he doesn't say, you're also out. So in this game, if you're going to win, and the kids already know how this works, you must learn to differentiate between all the imposters like Simone, Simeon, and Timon who are trying to lead you astray. And we win by only following the voice of Simon. Have you ever thought about this, church, that we are all in a cosmic spiritual game of Simon Says? We are. We truly are. However, as the Bible tells us, it's not a game, is it? It's what? It's a war. It's a battle. Christ is our commander. And if we don't listen to the commands of our leader, Christ, the general, the king, it's not going to go well for us, is it? And so we must learn to listen to his voice and his voice alone. As John just described, the son of the living God, he who was dead and is alive forevermore. I don't know about you, but just reading the description found in Revelation 1, that gives me goosebumps that one day I'm going to stand before him and so are you and give an account for how well we did at listening to his voice and how well we didn't listen to his voice. The reality is this church is called Eagle's Nest and a lot of people will say, oh, is that Zach's church, Pastor Zach's church? But it's not my church, is it? It's whose church? Christ's church. Christ is the head of the church. He is the only leader and head of the church. The head of the church isn't the Pope. It's not the deacons. It's not your pastor. 
And sometimes church members forget this or don't realize it, but the head of the church isn't even you. It's not. No matter how much you give or no matter how long you've been coming, the truth is Christ is the head of the church, and that means what he says matters. His opinions are law, not yours. Yours, you know where they go? We have a special filing cabinet for that, and it's called the garbage. Because if it does not line up with what Jesus says, we don't do it. Tracking with me so far? Okay. Colossians 1.18, here's what it says about this. And he being Christ is the head of the church, head of the body, the church. What is the body? It's the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means he might be first. If you think about this, when it comes to your job, if you want to do really well at your job, what do you have to do? Who do you have to listen to? Your boss, right? And one of the most helpful things for coming to realize how well you're doing or not doing when it comes to being a good worker and listening to your boss is a performance review, right? These are very helpful to get an accurate picture, if they're accurate and honest at least, of how well you're doing at your job. And then once you have this performance review, if your boss lets you know what you're doing well at and not so well at, you have an opportunity to then improve in the ways where you're not doing so well performance-wise. Instead of just going on in ignorance and then one day getting that little slip in the mail that says, you're fired, don't come in, or being called into the office and being fired. And so a performance review allows us to have a clue of how well we are doing. Now, I don't know about you, church, but this is something I often think about, especially being the pastor. I often think, how well are we doing as a church? Like, yes, there's problems, but generally speaking, in the midst of problems, how well are we doing as a church when it comes to listening to the voice we need to listen to? Sometimes I wish Christ would just show up in my office. I'd actually rather go to his office, but you know, show up and just say, all right, here's the things that you need to change. Here's what you need to do in this situation with those people, with this group, with that ministry, with this preaching schedule, with this music, right? Like you get the idea, all the things that we work through. It would be really nice to have a clear cut, just boom, do it done. Because I don't know about you, but I really do want our church to be faithful to following Christ's voice and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servants. And I hope you do as well. And so sometimes I wish Christ would show up and give us an honest performance review so we can know exactly what we're doing well in and exactly what we're not doing well in, instead of having to stand before the description of the risen Christ, which put John flat on his face as if dead, which we all will do when? At the Bema Seat, on the Day of Judgment. We will stand and give an account for every idle word even. Now, thankfully, though, we don't have to wait for that day, do we? Because in the book of Revelation, not Revelations, okay, that's very important. We don't have numerous Revelations coming out to us. We have the book of Revelation, and just a reminder, it's not Awanas, Aldi's, or Costco's, okay? Same kind of thing. There's no S. It's Revelation. You people know who you are. Um, But in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, here's what we find. We find Jesus sitting down through a letter, through John, through this vision he gets, in order to give them an open and honest performance review for how well they are doing. He tells them in these two chapters their successes. He tells them their failures. He warns them about what to do and what not to do. We see both. It's the whole package, a full review. And as a good boss, 
He tells them what the consequences will be if they don't listen to the correction they're given. And he does this not just for these seven churches. In fact, that's why the letter was passed down in the Holy Scriptures, because it's God's word, not just to these seven churches, but it's for all churches of all ages, so that we might look at their performance reviews they were given, and then run ourselves through that and see how we're doing as well, which is exactly what we plan on doing this morning. Now, before we just jump right into chapters two and three here, the reason we read chapter one is because it it sets the groundwork for what we're getting into here, all right? So let's do that first. In chapter one, we find an enormous Simon Says command that is attached to what Jesus says there. Here's what he says. I am what? The alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's like saying I am A through Z. I am all, complete, all in all is a song we often sing in youth group. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's a verse right there that a lot of cults out there need to pay attention to. Jesus was not a created being. He is not the angel Gabriel or Michael. No, he is the one who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is eternal. He is everlasting. And then after giving that little address of who is speaking, in verses 17 and 18, we read this. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The book of Revelation is primarily about future things. I think pretty much everybody knows that. Even non-Christians know the book of Revelation is about all this scary stuff at the end of the age that is said to be coming. That's honestly, a lot of it's quite terrifying. However, that's not all of it. In fact, You can divide the book of Revelation up into three parts. One theologian, I like how he does this. Here's how he puts it. The things which have been seen, and that was just described largely in Revelation chapter 1, which was the glorified Christ, which put John flat on his face as if dead. The things which are, are, right? So these are things currently happening that, that Jesus responds to in his performance review. He says to these seven churches, here's the things that are happening and need to change some of them. And then in chapters 4 through 22, we get to the things which will come. And so it is in these first three chapters, we find a message from Christ to the seven literal churches in John's day, which also provides application for our church some 2,000 years later. Now, we aren't obviously going to go verse by verse through three chapters today. We don't have time for that. But we do need to deal with a couple of the big themes in chapter 1 before we jump into chapter 2, okay? we got to deal with a couple of these themes, which come to us in symbols, all right? So first off, let's deal with some of these symbols. What's the first one he has here? He has uh, the seven golden lampstands, and then the second one are the seven stars, okay? So he's talking about seven golden lampstands and second and seven stars. So what are those? Well, it's not that hard to figure out. See, if you get up to those and then you stop reading, you're like, oh man, what are these? And you just start turning all over the place trying to find. Well, the answer is right there. Just keep reading, right? And Revelation has this a lot, actually. Like a lot of people get all worked up trying to figure out like the metaphor and the symbols. It's like, just keep reading because it tells you. And that's exactly what happens in chapter one here. Look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, here's the answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And just like that, we solved a mystery in the book of Revelation. That wasn't too hard, was it? 
Sometimes people overcomplicate this stuff. Now, the seven lampstands, that's pretty clear. It represents the seven churches, which makes sense, right? Because what is the job of the church to be? A light, a light to the darkness, a city on the hill that doesn't put the, you know, hide, you know, the little kid's song, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Don't put it under a bushel, no, I'm gonna let it shine. That's what our job is as a church, to give glory to God through being a light to the nations. And if you remember, Jesus talked about this back in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, he gives light to all in the house. Now, Israel was supposed to be a light. And how well did they do at that? Not good at all. They were terrible. They got a performance review. And they actually missed out on the kingdom, the offer that was given. And we've seen that through our study of the book of Matthew. However, the church now, we are called to be a light in this day. And that is our job. Now, notice something here. Notice how John said that Christ was standing in the midst of these lampstands. That is quite a blessing and and, and means of hope for us, is it not? Christ is here with us today in this room, right? He is with us in the midst of us as we come together to worship him. That's a wonderful truth that we must not forget. Christ doesn't dwell outside of his church. He's the head of the church. He's intimately connected to his church, which is his body. One of the things that's interesting about this is the lampstands. How does it describe what they're made out of? What are they made of? Anybody see it? Gold, right? And gold is one of the most precious of all metals. And even as we approach this performance review, we need to remember just how precious and valuable that we are to God. How precious? So precious to him that he gave up everything. He set the glories of heaven aside so he could be born in a manger in human flesh in order to suffer and die so that we might live. Another thing is gold is a metal that shines brilliantly, right? We're supposed to be a city on a hill with the light of the world. That kind of fits with that imagery there. And it's also, though, a symbol of purity and holiness, which is exactly what we are in Christ's eyes in the midst of a performance review that is pointing out things that aren't so holy, right? And that's kind of a hard thing for us to grasp sometimes. The reality is, as sinners, in God's eyes, we are justified, just as if we've never sinned is how he views us. And though right now that is the case, we are also being sanctified. We are shedding sin. We are getting rid of sin. We are becoming more Christ-like in the sanctification process where one day, hopefully very soon, we will all stand before him glorified and we will see him as he is. And as the scripture says, we will be like him. I hope you long for that day. No more sin, no more trials, no more problems, just eternal bliss and glorious worship for all of eternity. We need to remember this as we approach these performance reviews so we don't end up becoming legalistic, become self-loathing or self-righteous. Those are two bad options, two bad ditches we do not want to fall into. And we must remember all of this is true. The reason that we are spotless before God in his eyes is because the spotless lamb gave up his life on the cross to wash our sins away. It's really that simple. All right, now with that reminder, let's talk about the seven stars in Jesus' right hand. All right, this one is a little bit more confusing just because of the way it gets translated usually, but verse 20 tells us that they are the seven angels of the seven churches, right? You see that in verse 20? Now, I did just say the book of Revelation is pretty straightforward, but we got a little translation issue here we got to deal with because it gets a little tricksy because the Greek word for angel here is angelos, 
or angelos, whatever you want to call it, which means what? Angel, yes, sometimes, but what else does it mean often? Messenger. It means messenger. And so how do we determine which one it is? Roll the dice? No. The context, right? What are the three rules of real estate? Location, location, location. What are the three rules of biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. I picked that up from a helpful theologian. I think it's really, really helpful. That's true. The context determines a word's use. So if you want to do a word study, that's helpful to kind of see how the word's being used elsewhere, but it's not a clear-cut explanation. You can't just be like, oh, you know, this other disciple, you know, John, or maybe Paul used it over here in this way. Therefore, it means don't do that. You're going to cause a whole lot of problems to yourself. The word angelos can mean either messenger or angel, and the context will determine that. So technically it's possible, yes, that each church has a guardian angel and Jesus is writing them a physical letter to the angels, right? I guess that's possible. I don't think so. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So most scholars here, this is why they agree the better way to translate this is messenger. So we have the seven stars, which are the seven angelos, not angels, but seven messengers of the church, which are where? Where are they at? Jesus's right hand. Everybody with me? Okay. I feel like I lost a few people. All right, in his right hand, all right? So now we have to figure out one more thing. We've got the seven messengers in Jesus' right hand. We know what the lampstands are. That's the seven churches. What are these seven messengers? Okay, well, as we just said, Christ is the head of the church who communicates to his church how? Through his written word. That's how he communicates to us. That's how we get our marching orders. And within the church, who is the messenger that brings the written word to the people. Who's the gift that, which, which office is the gift described in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave to the church to equip them for the work of ministry? It's the office of the pastorate. Simply put, that's what it is. And within the church, it is the shepherd or the pastor's job to communicate clearly in a public setting like we're doing today, the marching orders that come from the head to the body. And so that, most scholars will tell you, is what angelos means in this context. Now, notice where these stars are. We just said they're in, in verse 20, it says they're in Jesus's right hand. And that's not a unimportant detail, right? That's a significant detail. And it's significant because it tells us how Christ views the messengers who preside within each local body, within each church. And it says he, closed, he holds them in his right hand. He holds them close to himself. See, in the Bible, the right hand symbolizes strength and control. And the fact that these stars, don't read into that, the, uh, these pastors are in Jesus' right hand shows us not only how very important they are to him, but they also show us something else. They are under his sovereign control. That's what it's telling us. And this brings us back to our recent study through Matthew chapter 23. We spent several weeks in there, more than that. And in that chapter, we saw how those who oppose Christ and oppose Christ's leaders are actually appointing, they're opposing his sovereign rule. Now, we shouldn't need to say this, but sadly, I'm afraid we do. But the fact that pastors in a church are compared to stars in Jesus' right hand doesn't mean they should go around acting like Hollywood stars, right? And sadly, they do. We're surrounded by so many celebrity pastors who are completely unfaithful to Christ, and who do not represent or lead his church as well. And so this is not a license for pastors to get an ego and to go around and throw their weight around and say their opinions are God's opinions. 
No, their authority rests upon the word of God. And so pastors need to be reminded of this truth. This is another helpful reminder for pastors who aren't doing that, because in the midst of troubles and hardship, which surely come, uh, Christ is reminding them how much he cares for them. They're close to him. They're in his right hand. And he reminds them not only of that, but that he is sovereign over whatever it is that they are facing. And boy, I can tell you that is a comfort as a pastor, and praise God for that. Um, The truth that is in this text is something we need to be reminded of, and that's why we find it in the opening chapter of Revelation chapter 1. All right, now that's it for symbols. Now we can continue on with our performance review as a church, all right, with these seven churches. As we said earlier, it's a letter to seven churches. Jesus offers some of them praise, some of them rebuke along with praise, and one of them is given a very serious rebuke and warning. So as we approach these churches, let's ask ourselves, which church are we? All right? Here's the seven churches. That's your outline, okay? This is a teaching outline, not an application outline. All right? Which church are we? We have seven options here. Let's jump into these. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to go to Revelation chapter 2 and follow along here because it won't be up on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the churches, I know your works. This is the church of Ephesus, right? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here's the consequence. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church of Ephesus is the church that the book of Ephesians was written to by the Apostle Paul. All right, And to start here, it looks pretty good what Jesus is saying to them. And in verse 2, we see Jesus here commending them for being hardworking, for hating evil. Because as Christians, we're to love what God loves and hate what he hates. And Jesus then goes on to commend them for rejecting false teachers who were calling themselves apostles, which they obviously were not. They were false apostles. However, even with this starting commendation, uh, in verse 4, Jesus then goes on to rebuke them. And for what? For forgetting what Paul told them back in Ephesians 4, verse 15. And what did he tell them there? Hold to truth, but do so in love. Yes, they were busy with ministry. Yes, they were doctrinally sound. They told the false apostles to hit the road. That was good. But they didn't have love. They were loveless. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, what are we? We're a noisy gong. We're a clanging cymbal. We are useless. As Christians, our first love is Christ. And if we lose our first love for Christ, we're going to lose our love for each other. And so the lesson for us then is to pause and examine ourselves to see if the joy of our salvation has diminished 
And if it has, we need to renew the joy of our salvation. If we've lost the joy of our salvation, our love for Christ, it's going to result in loveless religious obedience, right? We're going we're to be divisive. We're going to not be effective in ministry. We're not going to be able to love the unlovely. We're not going to do that. And as Jesus says in verse 5, if that's us, we must repent, or else the consequence is Christ will remove our lampstand, which means he might very well abandon that church and allow it to die out. And we see that happen all the time. Churches that start strong, that start very much, with much zeal for truth and love for God and others, and yet that first love dwindles, and eventually that church is no longer there. The second church is the church of Smyrna. Look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 2, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And he did. Why? So that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Then verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So there are some more consequences, right? Now, Smyrna is the only church, well, there's some debate here. It depends on if, as we'll get to in a moment, there's one church that is described as being uh, weak, not having much power. That, I, I think that is a, a critique, uh, but there's some debate on whether or not that's a critique. But Smyrna is for sure the only church here that receives only praise and no correction. And in verse 9, they are praised why? Because they don't fear what? Death. They have no fear of death. And they cling to Christ at all costs in the face of tribulation and great poverty. And what a lesson this is for us, church, which needs to lead us to ask ourselves, am I willing to give up life itself to follow Christ? Am I willing to have Christ be my all in all? And that's a really easy question to answer when we're sitting in America, where we have freedom to come together, where we're not under threat of persecution, of jail, imprisonment, and even beheading and death like they were. So maybe we shouldn't start with that, right? Because that's, that's kind of hard to say, would I, would I give up my life? Yeah, I think I would. Well, it's easy to say until you're facing it. So maybe let's start with something smaller. Maybe instead let's ask the question, am I willing to give up anything that I need to follow Christ and to serve him? Maybe start by asking, am I willing to give up my time, my money, my resources in order to faithfully follow the voice of Christ? And the sad reality is, when we look at the current state of the American church, it's often pulling teeth just to get Christians to do the bare minimum, to get them to attend the Lord's Day gathering, to get them to read their Bibles, to get them to pray, just the basics, let alone give up their lives. So we need to ask ourselves, am I living for Christ? Or am I like the church here of Smyrna, who's living for the life to come instead of this world? Third, the church here, we find the church of Pergamum. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And you can read about that in Revelation 19 and what he does with that two-edged sword. I know where you, are, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, consequence. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stones that no one knows except the one who receives it. At this church, they were commended because they faced heavy persecution as well, and they lived in the area where Satan dwells. Now, what is that talking about? Well, Satan's not omnipresent. He's not in all places at all times. He's not like God. He'd like to be, but he's not. And so Satan dwells. He's confined to one place and one time. And at this time, evidently where he was dwelling was where the church of Pergamum dwelt, and the result was barbaric and cruel persecution upon them. And yet in response to this, they held strong. However, while they were commended for this, Jesus also rebuked them for what? For following, for tolerating, maybe we should say, false teaching. The teaching of the Nicolaitans. The teachings of Balaam, who caused stumbling blocks and led people to practice sexual immorality. And for this, Jesus warns them that if they will not repent, he will soon come with that double-edged sword out of his mouth, which is picturing judgment. And as we said, you can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. And so in a culture that believes that doctrine divides but love unites, we need to never forget that Jesus takes doctrinal purity very, very seriously. Fourth is the church of Thyatira. Look at verses 18 through 29 with me. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and the ser- and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, you have not learned what some of the deep things, you have not, who have not learned what some of the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority over my Father. And that is definitely picturing Psalm chapter 2, if you want to write that down and read that this week. We are going to share in that, that ruling and reign that's described there. Verse 28, And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ commends this church for their love. He commends them for their faith, for their service, 
for their patient endurance and for their great works. However, he has a rebuke for them as well, which is largely tolerating sexual sin and idolatry within the church. Like the Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who wrongly thought that their tolerance of sexual sin showed their great love, Jesus warns that it actually shows their lack of love for him, which is a very serious thing. Sexual sin is something that God takes extremely seriously. It's no small sin. And my goodness, does not only our culture need to hear Jesus' words here, but the American church sadly needs to hear these words. The evangelical church, <clears throat> the evangelical church is plagued by adultery. It's plagued by pornography. It's plagued by music and movies that are full of nudity, sex, and violence, full of lust, fornication. You name the sexual sin, it's going on. And in response to this, Jesus tells them that if they do not repent, what is he going to do? He says that those who commit adultery will suffer intensely, and he will even strike their children dead. This sounds like the God of the Old Testament a little bit, doesn't it? I think it might be because it is the God of the Old Testament. He's not playing around here. Sexual sin and idolatry is very serious before God, even for Christians. It's extremely serious. And so if you are caught up in any sexual sin, hear Jesus' words. Repent, get help, and turn from the judgment that lays before you. The fifth church is the church of Sardis. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Right? Back to chapter 1. See why we needed to explain chapter 1? Let's keep going. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not, wake up consequence here. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and will never, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Well, Jesus commends the few who had remained faithful. He quickly and clearly condemns all those in this church who were lifeless. He says, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It's just a show. You're hypocrites. Like the Pharisees is what he's saying. Yeah, this church had a good reputation, but they were lifeless. They looked good on the outside, but what were they on the inside? Dead man's bones. Matthew 23, that's what he's describing here of them. In other words, this church was filled with unregenerate people who were going through the motions of religion, which is, sounds, again, an awful lot what we sadly find in so many churches in our country today. And in response to this, Jesus calls them to repent of their sins. Wake up, he says, strengthen what little remains and is about to die. Remember what you received and heard, obey it and repent. And then to the faithful few, Christ gives the promise of eternal life, not rewards, eternal life. Do you see the contrast here, what he's talking about? He's talking about eternal life. It's a consequence of this. 
He tells them that he will never blot their name out of the book of life, not because of their works that were faithful, but because of his work, right? Because salvation has cause and effect. And if the effect does not follow the cause, there has been no cause. That's very clear. We need to re-preach the book of James if we need to, right? Works do not save. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, you know what? Like what James said, his half-brother, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because if there are no works, you're dead. You are dead as a doornail. And so we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. We are saved by a faith that produces the good works that the Father, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us, prepared for us that we might walk in them. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, six, the church of Philadelphia. Look at verses seven through 13. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Before I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That's the verse right there, verse 10, that we're going to look at in our Sunday school hour. Verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name, which is also mentioned in Revelation 19. Then verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here, the church of Philadelphia, they're given praise with one debatable negative point. Did you see what it was? You don't have much power. You're weak. Little power, as verse 8 says, and there's debate on if that's actually a critique. I think it is, but Christ says to them, though, he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. You have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. He says that in verse 8. And the church of Philadelphia was weak in some respects, yet they remained faithful to Christ the Lord, who is the head of the church, and though they were weak because they were faithful, Christ promised them a wide open door of blessing. That's what he's telling them here. All right, lastly, we find the church of Laodicea. Look at verses 14 through 22. This is the absolute example of what we do not want to be. All right, church of Laodicea, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here's what he says to the church of Laodicea in verse 15 of chapter three. I know your works. You are neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you though are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and have prospered and I need nothing. But realizing that you are wretched, you are pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Verse 18, which is almost a direct, well, we'll get there. I counsel you to buy me from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For this church, Christ has nothing at all to commend them for. Not a thing. In fact, he's repulsed by them. And why? Because of their lukewarm heart. Now, we've talked about this before, but I'm sure a lot of you grew up maybe hearing preachers saying that God would rather have you be hot on fire, you know, just totally on fire for God, or just totally cold, because then he can draw you to him and get you hot. So lukewarm's the worst, because that's like halfway between. That's not what Jesus is saying here, all right? Nice idea, but that's not what Jesus is saying here, especially given the context of uh, how hot water and cold water worked back in this day. See, hot water, it's useful. Why? You can cleanse things with it. You can purify your dishes with it. Cold water can, and, can refresh and enliven. But lukewarm water, what do you do with it? Nothing. It's useless. And so too, like being lukewarm, we, if we are lukewarm in heart, are useless before God. And that is why Jesus is rebuking them for being useless instead of useful. That's his point. In fact, their lukewarm state wasn't just irritating him. He says it was nauseating him. That's why he spews them out of his mouth. And so those we find here, the church, the seven churches of Revelation, and this is the performance review that they are given by King Jesus, the head of the church. So the question remains for us, how are we doing as a church? If Christ showed up this morning and address the church from this pulpit, which is his church, and I would gladly move out of the way, would he praise us or spew us out of his mouth for being lukewarm? Would he critique us for embracing truth but being loveless? Would he critique us for sin, idolatry? How would we fare? Would he commend us? Or, like the church of Laodicea, would he condemn us? To the church of Ephesus, Christ warned them, saying this, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Church, if we lose at Simon Says, there are massive consequences. Massive consequences. Jesus says here he will remove the lampstand of this church. What, do you realize what he's saying here? The church is a lampstand, which as we said at the start, means to shine brightly in the darkness. And Jesus is saying, if you are a lukewarm church, if you are not faithful, if you do not respond to the performance review I am giving, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, which will result in the church's gospel light going out entirely. And sadly... Today, we know exactly what happened to the church of Ephesus. Here's the ruins of the church of Ephesus. They no longer are there. In fact, that whole area is in spiritual darkness, immense spiritual darkness. Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Ephesus started strong. They started well. But a ways into that marathon race called the Christian life, they started faltering. They started wavering. As history shows, they failed to do what Simon says, and the consequences were and are very, very real. As believers, 
Our salvation is secure. So don't misunderstand me this morning. Our salvation is secure. But if we fail to follow Christ, who is the head of the church, there is much at stake, much at stake. So have you left your first love? Have you fallen into sin and stubbornly refused to get out of it? Are you living for Christ? If not, hear Christ's words right here. Repent. Return to your first love, which is Jesus Christ, and follow him fully because he is absolutely worthy of all of our praise, all of our admiration. He's worthy of everything, including our very lives. For he is the Alpha, the Omega, who is and who, is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. There's so much in here we don't have time to touch today, but we thank you for the overall truths that we were able to look at this morning. And so, Father, we just ask that we would be blessed by them. Father, we ask that you would help us not to have stubborn hearts like the Israelites. Help us not to be a stiff-necked people who refuse to repent of our sins. Help us to turn from them and embrace the grace that you offer freely and fully found in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to truth. When there's so many churches around us who have sacrificed truth for the sake of pragmatism, for the sake of drawing larger crowds, Father, help us not even to be tempted with that. Help us never to go there. Help us to embrace truth no matter the cost. But also, Lord, we ask that we would do so, not out of piety, not out of self-righteousness, but out of love for you and love for others. Bad doctrine hurts people. In fact, it damns people, as you've told us and have shown us even throughout these seven letters. And so, Father, help us to speak the truth in love, to be a fragrant aroma, not a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Help us as a church, Father, to walk in unity, not uniformity, but in unity on obeying your voice for your glory and the good of your people. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.